morning, everyone. We are at week eight of our series on one another's soul care in the body of Christ. We're moving on to the last element of our chart. I'm not going to show the whole three trees chart. We, we showed it multiple times over, but as you know, the very last two elements were how do you relate? Well, that's what we've left behind in the last two sessions. Either you're humble honoring by the words, the fruit, the, the words and actions out of your mouth that come from a heart that knows the joy, peace, and love from Christ because he rules your heart. And so you have a two-way relationship with people in the church and a relationship with people outside of the church that we talked about today. And we prayed for those contacts that you have that are not believers. On the other hand, we are still in the flesh. Before Christ comes, until we're called home, we always have a tendency to want to drift back to a heart controlled by created things, and they will frustrate you. They can't satisfy that you can't bring the contentment that you need that you can only find in Christ in the three broad categories of comfort, pleasure, security, approval, status. Who are you in God's eyes, your eyes, other people's eyes, and power and control, these three big, big categories. And when they frustrate you, you get uh, fear, anger, guilt, shame, regret, bitterness. And they blow out in, in words and actions. And where do they go? To people. So either you're humble honoring or sinful manipulating. Well, we go to the last element here, and that's where do you run? This week and next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at that. And I represent that as a castle. And then, Lord willing, we'll finish up at the cross and how Jesus is himself the perfect satisfaction for all you need. He gives you everything you need for life and godliness, okay? That's kind of the orbit around the castle. But he is the king of the castle. He is the joy. He is the joy of the kingdom. But solid joys and lasting pleasures only Zion's children know. So that's where we're going. That's where we've been. And we deal with a castle here, so refuge is the last element here. Biblical refuge. Well, if you just take a concordance, I would fill the whole page with references to refuge in the Old Testament. Wonderful study. Anytime you're feeling down and just want to read yourself to sleep, okay, reading the word, just go through uh, Eastward or one of the other ones and just read all the wonderful passages. So I write down there several there and many, many more. That's an understatement. You know, the name of the Lord is like a strong tower. Safe is he who runs therein. So a refuge. Well, Martin Luther wrote, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And he added that last phrase because by the time he wrote that, gunpowder had leveled most of the castles. But God is a refuge that never, ever, ever fails. Well, a lot of wonderful texts there. You have two aspects that you find when you start reading through these texts. It says, run, real safety is here. Run here. And you have that language with, you know, strong tower. Safe is he who runs there. But then it's interesting you'll find texts that will say, when you pack your bags and get here for safety, move in, if you will. And it's those texts that orbit around the idea of God being your refuge and why don't you just dwell here. So I have a couple in red here. Psalm 4, 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. 
For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 27, 4 through 6. One thing I have asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will literally hide upon the rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. So you see those two words there, refuge and dwell. My third one is Psalm 61, verse 4. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. So you see again the, the two words, refuge, as well as dwell. The Bible describes a believer running to the Lord for safety, but once they're invited to stay, to move in and to dwell. This is not an escape from reality, but a place where one can function in reality, not free necessarily from pain, but thriving despite the heat or pain. When you go to the New Testament, there's an interesting absence of the word refuge even though it's overwhelmingly present in the Old Testament. But it's not that Jesus didn't talk about it. He just changed the metaphor and the word. So anyone want to come up immediately to that kind of idea when Jesus talked about refuge? One whole passage where I think eight or nine or ten times he repeated the same word. Gospel John? The vine. By the way, some people say, In the Old Testament, the overwhelmingly analogy of of your heart going to something else as a God replacement is the word idolatry. In the New Testament, there's very, very few references to idolatry, specifically referring to a Christian's temptation. 1 John 5.21 says, however, little children keep yourself from idols. But the New Testament overwhelmingly uses a different word, and that's epithumia that we were talking about many weeks ago when we first unpacked three trees. It's what controls your heart. Now, that idea was present in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 14, where Ezekiel describes from God that they took their idols into their hearts. Same theme, different ways of expressing it. So even though there are places in the world, I've been to them, many of you have been to them, India, for example, where there's very much uh, physical idols. They bow to them, they carve them, they make them. Idols are in the heart, whether they're physical or not. And they're all things, created things, that you make in your image. And when we talk about this today, we're talking about idols, and we'll have testimonies today about idols that you latch on to or you drift to, and they then destroy you. So we're talking about two castles. The other one is false refuge. Well, it says run here as well. Deuteronomy 32. Then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. Misusing people and things to escape the heat or to seek pleasure. Amusement. Do you know what the word amusement means? Don't think. No think. No music. Yeah, yeah. Is that necessarily bad? No. No, it's not necessarily bad. Can it be bad? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sure can. 
Who said it? C.S. Lewis, the line between right and wrong falls down through the middle of everything. Martin Luther said men can go wrong with wine, women, and the stars. So what shall we do? Ban wine and, and women and pluck the stars from the sky? He said something like that. Well, no, you know, you get the idea. So food, alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, sports, work, all God substitutes, all idols that you run to. The real dangerous thing is that some of these things that we'll talk about a little later are a process where you move from innocent pleasures to something where you find escape. And worse, it entices you to move in. And when you move in, it looks like a safe castle. What do they usually have down in the bottom? Dungeon. You get into this castle and it's 100% dungeon. The misused things will fail. They cannot provide relief. And when they fail, it may lead to life-dominating sins, addictions, depression, bizarre behavior. The end is not functioning, but destruction of life and relationships. I'm going to read Psalm 52, 7 here. I think it's the most devastating one of all. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own Destruction. So, stop right here. Questions? Do you see that dual nature? Run here for safety. Run here for relief. And when you're here, move in. One is to reality and to hope. Do you have pain in the other castle? Yeah. But a loving discipline from a father. And it might hurt, but Hebrews 12 says what? From a loving father... So it's not a pain that is to punish, but pain that's to purify, right? Okay, so we're going to go on. And I'm just going to show you a quick clip from Ed Welsh on addictions. Ephesians 4 talks well about the nature of addiction. It says that that we give ourselves over over to our desires. It doesn't end. It's, it's, it's one of the most frightening passages in Scripture. We give ourselves to our desires with a continual lust for more. The, the, the myth is that, that there's something good out there that, that, that is not permissible. If I could just have it once, it would be, would be satisfying. And, and it never works that way. We, we try it once, and... And maybe we found it satisfying. If we found it satisfying, we want more of it. Um, we do it a second time, a third time. If it wasn't quite satisfying enough, we figure if we, if we do it more, then it would be, would be even more satisfying. We give ourselves to our desires with a continual desire for more. Typically, addictions are our desires that engage physical pleasures in some way. Alcoholism, you feel like the addiction to will go to my bag. Uh, all prescription drugs of abuse, they take away pain. Your, your body feels better than it did before. And pornography would be certainly one of the prime addictions. It's, it, it engages bodily pleasures in some way. We can be addicted to all kinds of things. We can be addicted to power. Uh, but, but the physical pleasures tend to be what we specially identify when we speak about modern addictions. Okay, we're going to look at two texts here, because I think just reading the scripture and let it soak in. To give you the idea of the big theme of scripture, Proverbs 9, the entire chapter deals with the two castles. We're going to look at, it deals with the 
verses first, and the good one first and the, the bad one second. And the word castle is not used. The primary metaphor is two women crying out loud. And the first part is wisdom has built her house. She has hewn seven pillars. Well, there's at least a building analogy, if you will, right? And the, and the image is something solid and strong, right? Would you agree? Come, eat of my bread. Come and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the ways of the insight. Give instruction to a wise man. He will still be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years be added to your life. I didn't actually quote the entire 1 through 12. I just grabbed a couple of the verses there. But you get the idea there? The first two verses, wisdom has built her house and eat of my bread. Who in the New Testament talks like that? Jesus, Jesus, right? So do you see how you move from the Old Testament to the New? You get the same theme. Now, we're going to be talking about the good castle next week, but you can't talk about the bad without at least some comparison and reference to the good, correct? We're going to unpack the good castle next week, but here it is here, and side by side is the way the scripture teaches it and how I think we have to look at it here. Now, somebody read this one out loud. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Doesn't that sound like the Psalm 52 that we just read? Dead men live there. Who is the man who would not seek his refuge in the Lord? Last word was destruction. Do you see that? So you have side by side a wonderful picture of bread, of safety, of refuge, side by side. That's the life choice that you have, young, middle, or old. Remember that, because I'm going to talk about that later. The temptations to run to false refuge look different, sound different in different parts of life. It's the same temptation, same destruction. Well, the other passage is Ephesians 4 that you just heard Ed Welsh talk about. He talked about the first part. And this passage reverses and talks about the bad one first. And this is the one that Ed Welsh quoted. Most of the text here is from the Holman Christian Bible. Actually, the rest are all ESVs. But here we are. I'm going to read the first one. It's the one that Ed Welsh just spoke of. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts, they become callous and gave themselves over. That means they're responsible to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a continual desire for more. That's out of control. Can I have somebody else? Could you read this one off the screen here? But that is not how you learn about Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him because the truth is in Jesus. He took off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. You are made new in the spirit of your minds. You put on yourself the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of it. Ed Wells quoted the first one. Well, he only had a minute and 51 seconds. But he didn't read the second one. And the second one, after the first one, he considers that, and it is, one of the scariest passages in the New Testament. 
I think probably the scariest is the text when God just gives people over. But this is terrible. This is the hurt of the castle, the dungeon, the destruction. But the beautiful thing is there's a good castle, not necessarily called a refuge or a castle. And again, the metaphors change. But the focus on the Old Testament is the name of the Lord, him, his great precious promises, his vindication of delivering his people. And in Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. Right? That's what we have. We abide in him and he in us. That's dwelling. That's refuge language. So, that's Ed Welch's book. I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful book I had in our class with him. It's not just addiction. We're going to be speaking this morning about the bad castle as being... Well, the bad castle is not just simply addictions, but any life-dominating sin that pulls you away and enslaves you. So... This is his definition from page 35. Addiction is bondage to the role of a substance, activity, or state of mind. Think about that, because I'm going to give you some illustrations of that. Which then becomes the center of life, defending itself from the truth that even bad consequences don't bring repentance and leading to further estrangement. This is my paraphrase of the rest of that chapter and page. There are many influences that make a person's addiction unique. Life circumstances economic background, parental examples, genetic tendencies, all sorts of nature and nurture shaping influence, but they don't cause your addiction. They just shape which way you go when you voluntarily launch into something bad. Are addictions sinful or are they suffering? The answer will put you in square with the Bible or somewhere outside. The world has a distinctive answer Christ must have the final answer. He knows the heart. He made you. Sin is deceptive. It's evil. It's bondage. It's destructive. But you are also responsible. So the dual nature, this is from his book. He calls it, in the subtitle of the book, a voluntary slavery, a banquet in the grave. And I think, having gone through those texts from the scriptures, even briefly as we did, you will hear that ring true according to scripture. The human heart is purposeful, in control, high-handed, and voluntary. It teaches that. And then simultaneously it says it can be enslaved, automatic, out of control, and addicted. So Ed Welsh would say, listen, if you deny the out of control part, then you assume that everyone would have the power to change himself. Five steps, and you're out free. You got yourself into it, you can get yourself out. There would never be a sense of helplessness or desperate need for both redemption and power through Jesus. If you deny the in-control, purposeful nature of addiction, Christians will see themselves as victims and will be quick to place blame outside of themselves. The heat, the circumstances, that's what made me do it. They are left no other way to understand their guilt. The redemptive work of Christ is replaced with an emphasis on healing. If you want to know where some of these Christian ministries stand, it's not always determinative of what their view is on counseling. But if their overall emphasis on healing, you know kind of what side of the fence they land on. And like some other difficult theological issues of the scripture, don't deny one to the peril of either of these errors. Do you see that? The Bible puts the two together without blinking an eye. Do you see that? You need rescue. You need rescue. And Jesus is the only one who can. Again, 
pause for questions. How much do chemicals affect that addiction? And I'm curious about just the physiological. We are an embodied soul. The one book we referred to a couple weeks ago, Blame It on the Brains. According to Ed Wells, he puts it this way. Our bodies are instruments or equipment, if you will, for the soul. So, yeah, it's mediated through chemical feelings. And hormones, when you're 16, when you have your period, when you go through menopause, when men just go through anything, your body, chemically, hormonally related, can make you miserable. But it cannot make you sin. In addictions, it can be such a bondage that will take an awful hard, long slog to get out of. And our testimony, a little bit later, we're going to show a little testimony of a person with anorexia. Long way out of that. Because, man, you could almost taste the desire to fall into that trap that convinced you for so long that that was the way to make yourself right. And to replace that with Christ is hard. Okay, but Ed Welsh will share things that, well, I, I think from a medical point of view are good. But I'll just one last thing. People are really, really super depressed. They put them under MRIs. And, you know, MRIs are the color version of CT scan. So you can see what's chemically going on in the brain. So people are depressed, and they'll go like, okay, we'll give you Plavix, or we'll give you this. And they put it in the bean, and they put you under the MRI, and they go, how are you feeling? I'm feeling much better. Woo, pretty good. Give me more. <sighs> you know, and the MRI shows the brain chemistry changing. Wonderful. Good. Does it prove anything? Not really. In fact, the vast majority of scientists say it really isn't. What is the cause? What is the effect? So you can give people sugar pills. Say, this is the best drug known to men for depression. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling great. And they put them under the MRI, and guess what it shows? The brain changing. Because as many of the Nobel Prize winning Penfield and other guys over, over the years past, Russian neuroscientists and others say, listen, We can't understand the fact that the human soul can actually change itself. So don't think it's settled science in any way. Okay, here we go. How do addictions start? Well, if you're a Christian, and the context here is a Christian, because we could spend forever on non-Christian, okay? Just a little acknowledgement there. Step one, you leave the king's castle. If you've heard me say anything over the last couple of weeks, that often when Lucy and I have sat down to counsel couples, somewhere along the line we start talking to them about their church, their personal life, their individual life as a couple. Do they read the Bible? Do they pray together, separately? What are they doing? Are they part in a group? And it's almost nearly gone, or fake, or empty, or hollow. No prayer to his ear. No hearing his voice, no time with his family. You start to lose heart or harden your heart. Now, those are two commands in the Bible that are shocking statements. Don't lose heart. Don't harden your heart. Because the God that you're losing heart before has no reason for you to ever to turn inward on yourself and your own capability. It's a gap or drift. This is the language of Paul Tripp and Tim Lane in their book. You know, sometimes you've just never been a Christian that's been rooted in the king's castle over here at all. That would be a gap, okay, versus drift. And we're talking more about drift here. But I want to acknowledge that, so you're sensitive to that. Step two, circumstances reveal your treasure and trust is in created things. Your superficial idols start to fail you over and over. And these failed hopes lead you to seek refuge. So underneath all life-dominating sins are not only failed hopes, 
superficial idols failing you, but unresolved internal scorn. So what happens when a man, say, loves his career, wants his career to succeed, because that's who he is, and he gets fired from the job, he's sinned against, he comes home and snaps at his wife. What thorn in the heart is being expressed by words and actions? But what is it in the heart there? Regret, bitterness, fear, anger? Anger, right. First day in class, you'll never forget Ed Wells saying, you want to understand all this stuff? Understand the big four that drives psychology of madness. And sin is a worship disorder, and it is madness in the heart. That's language from Ecclesiastes. So, unresolved internal thorns, long time. Step three, fear, anger, guilt, shame, bitterness, regret. Then, over a long period of unresolved internal thorns, not repenting, the person will seek refuge and relief. Step four, but where you go for refuge to created things, where else is there go? You turn away from the living God. To create the very things that have failed you for contentedness in all areas of your life, Comfort, pleasure, security, approval, status is the example the man I just gave, or power control, and they will fail you now, only worse. So remember that couple that we looked at last week? One of her things is she was, went out with shopping, 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 shopping. You know, spending money, the husband said, that we don't have. Now, shopping can be all over the map here. Shopping can be a superficial idol, obviously, for comfort, pleasure, security. I want those things because I feel happy and good with them. It could be a superficial idol for approval status. I want more dresses and shoes than the lady down the road or the other person in church that I'm in envy of. Got it? For power control, you could kind of invent all these things. Could it also be a life-dominating sin? Yeah, it could. Where do you go? Questions there, because we're going to unpack some of those things that we were just talking about here with examples in the time, in the next 20 minutes. Yes? Did you say that people will turn inward and God will That's one of the ways, yeah. We're going to get there soon. It's very, very, you can go outward, inward, very destructive, against others. It kind of mirrors the three bad relational trends where when you want to manipulate people, you can move towards them to bribe, threat, you know, flattery. You're manipulating them. The other one was avoidance, but not because you want peace or refuge. You want to still manipulate them, right? And the other one is against. You want to punish them until they finally give in and stop getting in your way. It kind of mirrors that here as well with life-dominating sins. It's the same kind of thing, only more so. And it comes from a deeper depravity, a deeper hole that you're getting yourself into. Any other questions there? Yes? CPS for the first one which is the first deep motivational drive, which is comfort, pleasure, security. It's body-oriented, kind of, okay? It's the existential one. So when it is attacked, you have existential emotions, negative ones, like fear okay, and anger. Approval status, when that's attacked, you get anger. Well, anger is, is more a judgmental or moral negative moral emotion. And then, then you have relational ones as well for guilt and shame. 
So that's the three that we're talking about. We're going to end with that with the cross because when we, we talk about the very, very last session, how Christ satisfies all those deep desires, we're going to unpack a little bit of Christ's three temptations and how he was tempted in every way like us so he can help us and sympathize us in all temptations. So there's three broad categories there. Okay, outward focus. I think the discussion over here was a little bit of the out-focus. Uh, transforming, abusing pleasures or activity. Physical, alcohol, sex, drugs, food. Food, hogging out ice cream. You love it? Yeah. Until that's all you do. In the middle of the night, in the middle of the morning, at noon, at four. They don't call it comfort food for nothing, right? Is comfort food good? Yeah, it. Mom and apple pie, and well, you got the idea, okay. Emotional, depression, bipolar. We're going to talk about bipolar. We're going to lift that one off in a second. Relational, detachment, neuroses. Mental, all kinds of amusements to make you not think. Religious, self-salvation. I'm going to have an example of that. Very first counseling example that we had here four and a half years ago when Lucy and I arrived in the Atlanta area was this young man at another church and uh, just got married, and he was into drugs. He had a business and a lot of pressure. I said, well, why do you take the drugs? Why do you feel you have to take the drugs? To take away the pain. What's the pain? And he described it. You know, everything in his family, the pressure to be successful. Are you successful? Yes, I've made a million dollars and all this kind of stuff. So what's the other reason you want to use this for? Ability, strength to function. Does it give you that? He says, yes, but diminishing. He admitted that. Well, how does it actually make you function when you're out there on Jimmy Carter Boulevard at your business? He says, well, it makes me feel like I've got the ability, the mindset, the sharpness, and so forth. But can you think and do you think about anything else, about the Lord, your wife, your kids, whatever? No. You see, you see what it's doing there? It's an illusion of control. Bipolar. We're going to stop here for a moment. Who knows what bipolar is talking about? What does bi mean? Two. Two. Polar, North Pole, South Pole. Well, you swing between them. It's also been known as manic depression. So that kind of gives you the clue of the two poles. What is manic or mania? High energy, you think you can fly? Yes, yeah, it's wish... Somehow I wish I had a little bit of that more on a Monday morning, but I don't. Yeah, so strategies of all counselors, Christian and otherwise, like in the mania, you can do crazy things, wild sexual exploits, absolutely insane financial dealings. You can ruin your life fast. So you need strategies to keep them from that. When they swing, and the common Bipolar you know, depression is you swing rapidly over to the other one. And if the one is real, real high, the other one is really, really super low. And the strategy is to keep people from what? Kill yeah, killing themselves. Exactly. Now, Jay Adams is brilliant here. He's reading all this stuff from the secular world. You know, secular people want to help these people. So do Christians want to help these people. Ed Wells had several of his patients with bipolar in. Most interesting evening classes. So here you go. Jay Adams would say, everyone wants to know what is the core. Everybody kind of intuitively knows that one is the reaction of the other. But what is the foundation? What is the core? 
You want to guess? Is it the mania or the depression? Which one do you think is the core of the issue, the mania or the depression? Jay Adams said the research is absolutely wonderful, and this is where we can actually learn from secular research. It's the depression. So the, the immediate thing is that you keep people from ruining their life or killing themselves, and then you seek to find out what's driving the depression. Now, the statistics are that this disease, so-called, doesn't even exactly exist in most places of the world, but the Western world it does, and the overall number of people involved with this are women, overwhelmingly. And the statistics in the Western world, if you go like this, and this is about 1960, it's like this, overwhelmingly women. Here's another graph that looks almost exactly the same from about the 1960s for women, I think most people in this room can guess what at maps. Because many of you are really, really involved with abortion. Exactly. Abortion. It's not a sin that you can go back and undo. And then women who have had relationships with their parents, with their dad, with significant others and so forth, and have had that emotional attachment, and it's gone, and you can't undo what's been done to you and what you've done to other people. Do you see that? Or actually both. You have a, well, let's list the top four again. What were the top four internal big four, according to Ed Welsh? Fear, finish the list. Anger, what's next? Guilt, and shame. What do you think is going on here? Well, Jay Adams would say, the world cannot help these people because they don't know how to deal with guilt and shame. Do you know what the success rate is with lithium and talk therapy and all sorts of other therapy in the world? Do you know what the current cure rate is of rapid cycling, bipolar, and women? That is defined as getting back to actually functioning in a family and a job. Do you know what the percentage is? It's less than 10. Do you want to guess? About 5. Sad news, isn't it? Wonderful to hear the testimonies in Ed Welsh's classes when he actually brings people in and they give their testimonies of how Ed Welsh has worked with them for weeks. Well, Lucy and I have had a few experiences there. Long story, no time, no real reason to give that right now. But we want to talk about a few other ones here. Inward focus, adopting destructive acts, OCD. What's OCD? Yeah, constantly washing your hands because germs will kill you. Right? Yeah. Fourth John 3.16, kill germs that they're telling you. Well, you get the idea? Uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Which one of the big four is driving that? Fear, anger, guilt, shame, regret, bitterness? Fear. Fear, right. Anorexia, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Cutting. Then there's heat-related factors, gender or period of life. Paul Tripp wrote a book called Lost in the Middle. And we were reading that. Well, you know what it's all about, right? Lost in the middle. Men's midlife crisis. Well, when we were reading that, we were at Master's College, and I said, listen, we've had so many people that we've counseled early in life and late in life. Somebody's got to write a book, Lost at the Beginning and Lost at the End. Okay? I'm still looking for somebody to work with me to do one of those two. Lost at the start. Quick example. We, we counseled this young girl. Christian, definitely a Christian. Just finished Bible college up in Pennsylvania. Type A family. 
successful brains, straight A's, great careers, great ambition. She had none of that. Probably thought she was adopted out of a, you know, an orphanage because she didn't fit her family. She just graduated from college, poor relationships with men, no job, no ambition, no direction. She's making lattes at uh, Starbucks and just depressed, so low. Her manager was our pastor's daughter at the time. And she says, I know somebody who gives free counseling. So Lucy set up appointment the next week, and then she calls back an hour later. She says, I'm desperate. Can you meet me tonight? So we met her. Uh, We had a wonderful time with her. Uh, She lived a long way away, so we found another counselor for her. But uh, she was just lost at the beginning. Who am I? What am I doing? She wanted to be seen in somebody's eyes as worthy. So you know the Getty song, I am not, my worth is not in what I own? We've got to sing that sometimes. But we went through other texts. Midlife, well, we've dealt with all those things too. A man gets to be, well, I can speak to this a little bit, okay? <laughs> it happened a few years back. But you get in your career like late 50s or something like that. Your kids are done. You're, you're, you're out of school, all that kind of stuff. But most of the road of your life is behind you and in front of you. What do you do? All of a sudden, that emptiness pulls. What, what do men do? <laughs> they run into having an affair with a younger woman, or they do risky, wild stunts, like base jumping, or skydiving, or some other thing that will give them a momentary fleeting feeling that they're 21. Lost late in life. Just before Lucy and I moved down here from Pennsylvania, we were helping my friend out at PCA Church. At, oh, it's Dave Swavely, whose book you've, you've gotten. No. And... Uh, what was very, very fascinating was uh, this couple in the church. They were a godly couple. They were a wonderful couple. If you describe their entire life, marriage, kids, and everything, and church involvement, it's about as plain vanilla as you can get, without the whipped cream and cherry. Right? Just plain vanilla. No highs, lows, fine. One day, we were coming into church, and... We had a little prayer time. Uh, the library served as a prayer time. We were renting this facility. And the library, people who arrived earlier, like 20 minutes or so earlier, could go and join with prayer. Well, we show up one day, and plastered all over the library are these signs saying, War Room. Okay? And she's in there with an agenda. That pastor would read this, and this person would pray. And she was going to take over this 15-minute prayer time. And she was going to have the ladies study this book and do this and that and everything. She had found a purpose. Wow, did she have this purpose. So I really had to share the word war room. I'm not making any judgment pro or con or in between about the movie or the book or anything like that. I'm just stating that that was the heat that gave her a spark that said, this is my life. I have a purpose now. I will save the 21st century church, starting with one PCA church at a time. You get it? She was prideful, judgmental, deceptive in her planning, pushy, not to mention unbiblical, in taking over the teaching from the men, telling them what to say this Sunday. I talked to her husband that day. He was scared. The movie had just come out, and she had already seen it 22 times. I think that's obsessive. A little bit. I don't know what happened there because shortly after the church folded. But I have another example here. 
also, I have a purpose. I will save myself. Cleaning myself up. God got me saved, but everything after that is me. I want to show you this testimony of Emma Shrivener. We'll end, I think, with this because of the timing. Hey, this is Joseph from Everland Gap to being a rock star. It's on a stable in the moment. My name's Emma Scrivener, um, and oh, uh, twice in my life I've had anorexia, which nearly killed me. But on both occasions, as a child and an adult, I would say that I was a Christian. In fact, I go so far as to say that when I was about 13 and became a Christian, that's when some of my problems actually started. Now, it's funny because you hear about people with a testimony sometimes and you think, well, that's when it all goes right. Your skin improves and you get a boyfriend and all the rest, but not for me. And I think it's a large part to do with the kind of God that I found. The God who actually isn't the real God, it wasn't Jesus, but a God that I kind of made in my own image. And this God was a God who was all about rules. He was all about performance. And... Um, and I figured that he kind of got me saved, but then from then on in, the rest was up to me. And in some ways, you might think that's bad news, but I'm one of life's good girls, so it sounded to me like that was actually good news instead. I like rules. In our family, I have a younger brother and sister, and we've got a saying, which is uh, that my sister got the brains, my brother got the looks, and I got the morals. Uh, so I came off pretty bad on that one. The problem was that no matter how good I tried to be, whether you know in looks or in grades or in morals or whatever, it turned out that good was never good enough. So what happens when a good girl goes off the rails? Well, I turned to drugs, but not drugs as you'd hear it in a conventional sense. My drug was being thin. My drug was anorexia. Um, and for me, it wasn't about being size zero. I didn't look in the mirror and think I was fat. I didn't want to be like Kate Moss or, or anything like that. For me, fat was all about mess. I felt like there was too much of me. I was too intense. Um, I didn't look the way I was meant to look. I didn't know how to say things the right way. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I belonged. Whatever I did, I felt I, it just wasn't enough. And so... Being thin was a way for me of cleaning up the mess. I felt like I was red wine spilt on a white carpet. And whenever I tried and got thinner, it was like I was staying with steam. It was like I was cleaning myself up. The old me wasn't working, so I decided I'd make a new one. But the problem was that even though I thought I was in control of my eating disorder, it was controlling me. As a child, I got help. I got very sick, but we uh, got counselling. I put weight back on again. But on the inside, the issues were all still there. So, what does a good girl do? Well, I threw myself into Christian ministry. And seven years ago, if you'd seen me, you'd have seen someone who was married to a vicar, studying at Bible College, thriving children's ministry. We were dynamos, and we were going to really go far. But on the inside, I was scared, and the old patterns were starting up again. I was scared of being a vicar's wife. I, I don't know how to do a tray bake. I'm not a very welcoming and open person. I was scared of it all. didn't know how to handle it. So the old patterns started again. And it wasn't glamorous. I got really, really sick. And there wasn't my parents to feed me spaghetti this time around. So my hair fell out, and my organs started shutting down. My nails turned black. And I remember trying to get up to go to the loo one day. I didn't make it, just lay there and put myself on the floor. 
And that's sort of the face of an eating disorder. It's not glamorous. It's really, really horrible. It's a bad place to be. We were waiting for me to die. It seemed like no one could help. But somebody else died first. That was my grandmother. Uh, I was very, very close to her. And she was in Ireland. I was over in England. But I was too sick to make it to the funeral. And that night, I looked into the fire. Um, and I, I cried out to God. And Lord, I said, like, I've been running from you. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing. But if you'll take what's left, will you have it? And the God that I met there, there was no thunderbolt or, or lightning or anything like that. I opened up my Bible and I met Jesus. Not the God I thought I knew, but the God who knew me. And funnily enough, I read about him in the book of Revelation. There were two pictures of him I saw there. One was a lion, blazing, in control, eyes like a fire, unstoppable, more intense than I could ever be. But the other picture was a lamb, someone who died for me. Someone who was broken and who understood what it was to be weak. And it was those two things. His power and his majesty and his control, but also his weakness. And it was his kindness that finally brought me to my knees. You see, I was wrong about God. I thought he was about rules. I thought he was about math. But he didn't want my masks. He didn't want my apologies. He didn't want me to do better. He didn't want my performance. Jesus wanted me. And I knew that I was broken. I've known that all my life. I didn't know that I was loved. I didn't know that I was already accepted. But when I knew this, it changed everything. That began for me a process of a long recovery. Um, and it, it takes years. It is a process. It's hard. You go backwards, you go forwards. It's not simple. But this is where I started. You see, I spent my life trying to find a God that I could never please. But in a darker place, it actually turned out that Jesus had found me. So did you like that? Yeah. Well, we'll just end with that. We'll continue next week. There's only two slides left, but we almost got to the end. Finding Gospel Hope. Did you hear at the end the Jesus who is the lion and the lamb? Do you hear the dual themes of treasure? His kindness brought her to her knees. But the blazing lion is the power and the control. Do you see those two things? Treasure and trust won her over. A couple questions to think about. We'll take up next week. Remember at the beginning she said, in both times she would say, I was a Christian? Think about the thoughts. Was she a Christian before? I don't think we doubt that she is after. Second question to think about this week is, can a Christian get themselves drifting to that kind of thing. There's a little more subtle question there, which I'm just going to give you one little bit here. That was filmed 10 years ago. Do you know what happened in 2020 to all of us? It's called COVID. It's COVID. Do you know what happened to her in COVID? Well, she didn't go back to anorexia, but she did lock herself in a room in England for a while. She realized that that was sinful. So here, think about this. Jesus knows that we are flesh. He knows that we are dust. He knows that we are weak. What does the living Christ church do with people who have been there, rescued, but they're weak? The part of addictions that is really scary is that if a terrible heat thing happens, they run into their addiction, say alcohol, and they don't start with one drink a day. They start where they left off. 
And with her, she has a great shock, and she went, didn't go back to anorexia, but she did find herself in her room not wanting to come out. So she had to kind of relearn exactly what she just confessed. Okay? So just think about that, okay? And what a compassionate, loving church does with people who we've saved out of that mess. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.